hello, my friends at Future Primitive. I'm very excited. I'm happy to be with Charles Eisenstein, sitting right here in a beautiful, beautiful spot in New Mexico. I'm going to tell you why I'm happy to be with him. Something I never do is because I love the way this man thinks and feels. And uh, I'd say that I love him. So, Charles Eisenstein is a teacher, speaker, and writer, focusing on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. His writings on the web magazine Reality Sandwich have generated a vast online following. He speaks frequently at conferences and other events and gives numerous interviews on radio and podcasts. Eisenstein graduated from Yale University in 1989 with a degree in mathematics and philosophy and spent the next 10 years as a Chinese-English translator. He lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with his wife, Stella, and he has written two books, The Ascent of Humanity and Sacred Economics. But Charles, what I would like to ask you is something that you mentioned last night and I was thinking about today. Money and the divine masculine. If you'd begin by telling me from your own experience how you envision the divine masculine. um, It's funny you ask. uh, I spent the morning with my good friend Mark Choit. We were hiking and we were talking, most of the time we were talking about the divine masculine and and what it is. Maybe people knew what it was 10,000 years ago, but we've kind of, uh, we don't really know what it is right now. Uh, And having been through the feminist movement uh, where we, you know, maybe let go of the kind of distorted, exaggerated hyper-masculinity of, you know, machoism and and patriarchy, and, and, you know, letting go of that uh, in the 60s and 70s during the feminist movement um, and maybe even suppressing our masculinity, uh, seeing it as something shameful or bad. Uh, and now that's past history, too. And now we're emerging um, into a rediscovery of like what what is it to be a man in a positive way? And what we, we, we sense that there's something to be to be recovered and maybe even something new. Um, but we don't know what it is. And I've been learning about it from my own experience and from other people, other men who are exploring it. Um, and I know, and I'm beginning to understand some things about it. It might take thousands of years to really fully recover it. Um, but for me, part of it is having a connection to my mission and to my purpose uh, of being here. So the, you, you mentioned money and the divine masculine. Um, 
because uh, I, I wrote an essay about that, mm-hmm. and the the thesis of that essay is essentially that that this positive expression of masculinity has been kind of hijacked uh, and diverted into making money, which is this is it is kind of like a male realm. It's it's abstract. You know, money is 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 abstract. It's numbers. You know, and you pile up the numbers. Um, but it's kind of a substitute for uh, a man's mission, which is really of service, not of accumulation and, and domination. Uh, that's a distorted masculinity. It came out of a vision that I had when I was in Portugal at uh, this eco-village called Tamara, a really radical place, and I could talk more about that, but we were in a, in a circle, and the leader of the of the ceremony at one point she talked about the healing of money, and my eyes were closed. And at that moment, I had a really vivid image, uh, a vision, uh, really vivid. I mean, I could see it in, in three dimensional detail of a huge beautiful man, muscular, naked, tied to the ground with stakes and ropes pinned to the ground and and struggling with all of his strength, every atom of his strength to, to get up, straining against the ropes. And he couldn't get up and he couldn't get up. And then finally, with one burst of all of the energy he had, he finally pulls himself out of the ground and stands up with a big roar of triumph and strides off with purpose. And those bonds were made of money. It ties in beautifully because as I was thinking about having a conversation with you this afternoon and in the last three days that... Uh, you've been doing events and I've been listening. I've been thinking a lot about abstraction. And if a more beautiful world that is good for our heart would have to do with coming out of this extreme abstraction in which we are. Yeah, Um one thing I write about is the um, process by which humanity became separate from nature, separate from the divine feminine, separate separate from materiality even. And one of the key moments in this process happened maybe 30,000, 40,000 years ago with the development of symbolic culture, uh, sp- spoken language, uh, and then, then later on written language. Uh, and numbers and math and and we became more and more immersed in a world of symbol, a world of abstraction, of representation, reaching its extreme in the present day when when we live in the world of images and hype, you know, and propaganda and um, and we hardly even know what's real anymore. People and, and people, you know, in America. Uh, live half their lives in front of screens, you know, looking at representations. And money, too, is an abstraction. You know, it's symbol also. Um, so part of the, certainly 
part of the transition that we're going through and that we're wanting to create is a recovery of the connection to the real and other kinds of relationships that aren't mediated by symbol anymore. Symbol, but I'm not saying that we're going to abandon this 30,000, 40,000 year old technology um, because it does have, like everything else, it does have its true purpose. Um, there's, there's controversy uh, among anthropologists about how language got started. It's pretty hard to come up with a good explanation, a convincing explanation for it. I've read a lot of really bad explanations, like it was developed in order to transmit the knowledge of how to shape tools, you know, or to coordinate hunters. And like, those all seem really far-fetched to me. Um, and one day I realized that the, that the original purpose of language was to tell stories. And that is still probably the most powerful way that we can use language. Um, and so we're transitioning from, an, from one story to another story. So we're still um, going to use symbols, abstractions, to tell the new story, to create the new guiding myths that define our civilization. Uh, but also, like in this transition process from one story to another, we have these moments where we're not living in any story at all, where the old reality, the old constructs fall apart. And the new ones, they're just starting to form and, and maybe they're not quite forming yet, you know, and we're in this moment, which might last a while, but it's a moment. It's a sacred moment of being in the real. So I think a lot about the origin of language. And uh, what I came up with about the origin of language is it's about love. And it's about, at a certain point, we were bursting with feeling and feelings. And we really wanted to express to the other what we felt. And so we started painting what we felt in our feelings with language, which leads me to say also what I mean by abstraction is that it seems that the more we suffer, the more we have suffered, the more we have a tendency to speak in abstraction. Mm -hmm. So how could being more in touch with our feelings make us tell stories that would be less abstract. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think stories in stories fundamentally are less abstract than you know theories and statistics and things like that, and they're also a lot more powerful. Like you know, I could quote to you. Uh, all kinds of statistics about one in seven children go hungry and this many children are this and that many, right? And that won't be as powerful probably as telling the story of one child uh, and his mother doesn't come home and he's so hungry that he's eating dirt. You know, like that's the kind of thing that really gets under our skin, you know. 
So I think, yeah, I think one tactic or one approach to social creation uh, that we need to become better at is to tell powerful stories and not to rely so much on trying to convince people with the force of logic and the force of reason, which is a kind of force. You know, it's saying you must believe me because A and B, therefore C, right? And it's it's kind of like this compulsion. Uh, and it's usually not very effective. I rarely see people change each other's minds. You get some Republicans and some Democrats in the same room. Their logical arguments based on what they consider evidence and, and reason, they're not going to change each other's minds. But a story can create a shift in somebody. Um, of course, people can ignore stories too. But I find that that they get under our defenses. So in chapter 23, <laughs> it's like I'm quoting Elias' chapter. When um, chapter 23, you talk about after you published The Ascent of Humanity, you didn't have any, you actually say you were poor. And uh, you talk about having had to sleep in friends' houses uh, with your children. And how did you deal with the aspect of feelings at that time? Because I think that the shame is a very big factor. Perhaps shame is a greater factor in being poor than actually not being able to have, to get resources or more of a paralyzing factor. So how did you deal with those feelings that have been um, that have been inculcated in us about being poor? Yeah, I'm trying to think back. The people that I stayed with, I mean there were two essentially two families that I stayed with, one for three months and one for two months. Uh, and they were like especially the second people they were so wonderful they were they were just like so loving that that the shame just didn't even really have a chance to operate you know they just disarmed that uh so quickly with their their welcoming acceptance um their generosity um that wasn't really the place where i confronted shame so much um, I mean, it came up all through, you know, there's always been this voice speaking to me that says that, you know, my kind of marginal existence uh, for all of those years, it's because I really don't have what it takes to make it in the world. And so I've decided to rebel instead, you mm -hmm. know, to kind of excuse my incompetence, my laziness my inability to, you know, I can't cut it, right? So I play the role of a rebel, but, but actually it's that I can't, that I'm not good enough, right? Like there's a voice that, that, that's, that says that to me. Uh, and so I've had a lot of uh, practice <laughs> listening to that voice. Um, but I can say that thanks to the generosity 
of my readers and all the people who love me and who support my work, that that voice is a lot less powerful today. Okay, so um, generosity is the new story uh, about not living with the fear of money, trusting, believing, and knowing in the generosity of the community. But I want to, you know, this Native American woman, Beata, when she read her poetry last night, she spoke about the patience that comes with truly knowing about change, like the erosion of mountains and rivers cutting stone. So tell me a story about change and patience. Hmm. A story about change and patience. Um, hmm, I wish I could have thought of one, had some time to think of one. <laughs> but I mean, I can, I can say like, uh, you know, one of my favorite sayings was coined by Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So here we live in a world that has urgency and busyness and hurrying built into it on a very deep level. You know, the saying, time is money. Um, we live in a world of scarcity. The money system generates scarcity. We, we live in the, because of the way that money's created, it, it, there's never enough, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this feeling of never enough applies to our time, too. We feel like there's never enough time. We're, we're, we're these mortal beings, you know, and, and we have a limited number of hours in our lives, and they're ticking by all the time, tick, 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 tick. Uh, another phrase I love from John Zerzan, clocks make time scarce and life short. Mm. So we live in a... Because anytime you measure something, it becomes finite, you know? So we live in a scarcity of money, a scarcity of time, a scarcity of love. Uh, there's, there's never enough. Uh, so, and our world is built on that perception of scarcity. So, now we want to change that world. Should we be in a hurry to change it? If our efforts to change it are coming from that same place of there's not enough time, then aren't we going to create the same thing, the same basic thing in a different form? Anything that we create from scarcity is going to embody scarcity. So I think that um, one of the, and I like to use this word technology in a very, very broad sense, one of the key technologies of the revolution that we're in right now is the technology of patience, the technology of waiting. Especially, that's especially important at those moments where you have no idea what to do. If you know what to do, then maybe there is a place for urgency. Like if your house is on fire, right? Then that's some time for some urgency. You got to do something right now. But suppose you're sitting in your house and you don't know what's wrong. Subliminally, subliminally, maybe, you smell smoke. and But you don't know. But all you know is there's something wrong around here. What should I do? If you run around doing stuff, then you might not 
have the, the, the clarity and the awareness to realize at some point, oh, that's smoke I smell. So right now, I think a lot of us, individually and collectively too, we're at this kind of point where we're feeling overwhelmed or um, the problems we face are just too big or the solutions we've been using are no longer effective and we just don't know what to do. And at the moment where you don't know what to do, well, how about not doing anything? How about waiting until clarity emerges or waiting until courage emerges? I'm not saying that that's always a good thing to do. There's a special moment where that's necessary, and it's this moment between worlds, you know, where things have fallen apart. And that's the moment that a lot of us are in. So, yeah, I, I really resonate with, with, that, with that poem and, and um, this other way of being that's not always in a hurry. To not be in a hurry basically means that you're not living in the experience of the scarcity of time. And that's a deep revolution. The patience of mountains. Mm-hmm. I love what you say, the time between stories. Because uh, there's so much pregnancy mm-hmm. <laughs> about um, what the new story is. So that's what I've noticed, that, uh, that people want you to tell them what the new story is. And so I'd like you to uh, go inside yourself like you do so well and describe what it is to be in between the notes, the music notes, and particularly in your work, to be in between stories. Hmm. I guess... During the course of any day, I have moments of being in between stories, like moments or moments of not being in a story, moments of just direct perception of everything around me, um, moments of feeling and not thinking, moments of emptiness. Um, So that's a smaller example. A bigger example would be when something in my life that I've been holding on to falls apart and I can't hold on to it anymore. And at the beginning of that, well, before it happens, usually usually I know that, yeah, something's going to happen. This isn't working anymore. You know, something is going to fall apart. And, and we have that collectively now too. Uh, and the feeling there is a mixture of dread and excitement. Like part of us, we kind of want the world to fall apart, you know? I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you're like going to whatever peak oil websites or whatever and like kind of gleefully reading the the latest news of catastrophe, right? And I think personally, like part of me kind of, I'm afraid of it, but part of me wants it to happen too. So that's the feeling before. And the feeling during, um, it can be, it's actually, I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it's really scary, but sometimes there's a feeling of like simplicity or even intimacy with, with myself because all of this, all of these stories, all these interpretations, all of the meaning 
that I was making about things, that's all gone. It's all cleared away. And I'm just left with myself. One thing that makes this happen is illness and great physical discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that the dying process would be another process that would just sweep away all of the stuff and bring me back to the real. And it would be really an intimate uh, experience. So there's like there's a feeling of like kind of almost sweetness in it and simplicity and intimacy. I loved uh, two words, I uh, love three words in the language most of all, and those are poignant, intimate. This afternoon we had a conversation, we were in a group and we had a conversation, and uh, as you were talking, it came to me that I felt that what most of the people there were saying from different point of views is can we have true intimacy with money mm-hmm. or with people with money? Mm-hmm. Speak to this. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the people at that meeting were involved in philanthropy or nonprofits, foundations, things like that. And they were describing kind of the the dysfunction and and the awkwardness that comes when you're asking for money or giving money and all the distrust that comes up uh and the the one woman saying that you know that as soon as she calls calls someone who has money they're like uh oh you know I'm going to be asked for money and it kind of gets in the way of the relationship and then people with lots of money then Everybody around them like wants something from them, you know, and how can you have intimacy when there's an agenda like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's very challenging. Um, I think just more generally outside the philanthropy or funding world, I mean, I think a lot of people have probably experienced what money can do when it enters into a friendship or a relationship with a relative. Like you could have some siblings, perfectly fine, and then they, there's a big inheritance and they start fighting. So there's a reason for this. Um, what money, the, why money has this nature. Uh, but for now, we can just observe that it does have this nature and uh, will continue it's our, our, our personal efforts to overcome this, um, they can be successful, but it requires a big letting go. Uh, it requires a letting go of a mentality that naturally comes along with money. To have the splintering, separating effects of money disappear on a large scale, we will have to change money itself. And what came to me is how can you be authentic with somebody who has what you want? Um, mm. I've, I've had that question in mind for a long yes. time. Yes. Um, the way to be authentic with somebody who has something that you want um, is that you have to be honest and not manipulate them 
into giving you what you want. And that manipulation can be very subtle. You could uh, kind of exaggerate your hardships a little bit uh, or kind of insinuate that that person isn't experiencing those hardships and it's not fair. And therefore, you're trying to make them feel a little guilty uh, or ashamed of themselves. Well, guilt and shame are a type of force because they uh, ultimately they they tap into the survival fear uh, because they guilt and shame originate in the rejection of the parent or the conditional acceptance mm-hmm. of the parent, uh, and that you know that gets internalized as rejection and acceptance of self, and that's where guilt and shame come from. Uh, and so when you're triggering that, then basically you're forcing somebody to give. Uh, or you could dangle ego rewards in front of them, you know. Um, like, if you know, set it up so that if you give to me, you'll get to feel really good. You get to be a good person. You get to feel good about yourself. Uh, every, everyone, I'll tell everybody else, you'll, everyone will see you as generous, right? All of that, that's not authentic, right? Um, authentic would be uh, to, to maybe state your need, and and make a request, a direct request, without any of that other stuff. And that's pretty hard to do for us. We're not used to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to not make a request. But if it's a request, it should be honest. It should be direct, I think. But, you know, but there's a whole cultural layer, too, where, you know, in some cultures, a direct request could be phrased in a very... Uh, almost ritualistic way. And there's kind of a dance uh, in this gift relationship. So I don't want to... There's some subtleties here. Wow. It's very, very, very subtle. Yes. And uh, I know personally I have to watch myself constantly because there are so many subtle ways of manipulating for what I want, which which too bad we some of us had to manipulate our parents for our yeah. basic needs. Yeah. I can give you an example actually even. Uh, um, when I lived in Taiwan, if you went to visit somebody, uh, say, you know, whatever time of day in the afternoon maybe, uh, they would always always ask you, have you have you eaten? Are you full? And um, especially if it was near a mealtime or something, if you said, uh, yes, I've eaten, then that would actually be a request for food. If you didn't want food, you would have to say, oh, yes, I'm stuffed. You know, like that would be, so like this signaling can be, words, you know, have a meaning that uh, you can't necessarily find in the dictionary. You know, and, 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 and the context of the conversation matters. It matters uh, sometimes if you say, yes, I've eaten, that is enough if it's more of a casual relationship. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it can be very subtle. Yeah. That's uh, very interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is the fact that you speak Chinese and that you have communicated for a long time with people who speak Chinese and have a, sp- a Chinese cultural Makeup does that influence the way 
you write and use language. Hmm. Sometimes I think that every language offers a different lens through which to see the world, a different perspective. And when you think in one language, some things are obvious. And in another language, those things are no longer obvious. Uh, so especially when you've really deeply taken on a different language, mm -hmm. then something of that worldview and that lens uh, seeps into your brain. And you're able to see things that would be very hard to see in another language. So, yeah, you know, I think it does have an effect um, on my perceptions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking I'm a much ne much less nice person in French than I am in English. <laughs> yeah. And I have these constant French subtitles running almost yeah. all the time. Uh, perhaps we could speak of the space between languages for us who yeah. speak languages. Well, one of the concepts I, I work, well, I haven't really worked with it that much for a while, but I wrote about it a little bit in The Ascent of Humanity is this the lingua adamica, uh, the original language, the language of Adam, which isn't a representational language. It's not a symbolic language. It's a language where the sound and the meaning are one, where it doesn't even have a meaning, but it is something. Like an example of a word in the original language is wow. Like that doesn't really mean anything. It is. It's the cry of the human animal. Uh, so... Yeah, but but yeah, I I don't know. That just came up when you talked about the space between languages. Yeah, um, yeah. I like wow a lot. It was a gift from speaking American, but I like it a lot. But other languages, like in Chinese, it's wow. Wow. So I think, I don't know about, like I don't really speak European languages, but um, I mean, isn't there an equivalent, an exclamation of in, awe? In, in French, it's no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, You know something I love that I found very funny that I read today um, regarding the crisis of 2008 and the subsequent years is that people are running a story and I don't want to put down the fact that people, um, that we need money and everything. But I love this. Money has fled. The, this is the story of the last few years. <laughs> Uh -huh. I like that a lot. Money has fled. And it just reminded me of a lot of people who every day tell me how money has fled. Yeah. So has money fled, Charles? Well, a lot of people are experiencing money fleeing um, <laughs> from their lives. I'm sorry. I, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, when I mentioned that in the book, it was kind of in the context of money being kind of a substitute for God or for spirit, you know, it's this invisible thing that makes the world go round. It's the prime mover. It's the ultimate goal, right? It's all, I mean, this is all like things you could say about spirit. Uh, and when, so, you know, when the spirit leaves the body, you know, in that framework, then the body's dead, right? And the body can't move anymore. Well, when money leaves the economy, then the machines don't work anymore, People can't do the things that they were doing. Why don't the machines work anymore? It, they still have gasoline. They still have people who know how to operate them. Everything physical is still there. But this immaterial thing is gone, just like spirit. 
and now they don't work anymore. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So... How much does the power of story change the uh, the direction of our lives? Um, well, you could say that we create our lives through the stories that we tell about ourselves in the world. Um, that because stories contain roles, characters, roles in them, and they contain a role for ourselves and for the people around us. So whatever story we're inhabiting, um, we will behave in a certain way. Certain actions make sense from within a certain story. So in that sense, they're extremely powerful. Uh, However, I'd caution against the conclusion that one therefore could invent a new story and try really hard to believe this new story and change your life like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because stories are attracted to a state of being that's bigger than story. They're attracted perhaps to a wound that we might carry. They're, they're They're part of a state of being. And as our state of being changes, as we evolve, as we go through a crisis, as the world falls apart, then a story that we had lived in for a while might no longer serve us, might become obsolete. And at that moment, then we're ready to take on a new story. But it's not necessarily something that you can do through an act of will. And that's one of the problems with some of these new age techniques of you know changing your beliefs and change your reality. Like, it's true that beliefs create reality. It's not true that you can change your beliefs through an act of will. Some people do have the experience of changing their beliefs through an act of will, but that's because it was time. The beliefs were ready to change. Mm-hmm. They were ready to step out of the old beliefs. But, you know, you can try it. You know, you can, you can say your affirmations uh, and tell yourself a new story, mm-hmm. but there'll be a little part of you, if you're not ready, a little part of you will be like, nah, who are you kidding you know, and you're just kind of pretending to believe something. Pretending to believe something is called lying to yourself. And the results that manifest will be contradictory. But yeah, stories are very powerful. So um, do you think that it will be useful and it could happen to change the meaning that money has in our lives? Yeah. Um, And a lot of people are ripe for that uh, because the old meaning that money had in their lives isn't working very well. It it, it doesn't make sense anymore. For example, the meaning that money equals security, money equals happiness, um, money equals health, you know, that doesn't always work these days. Um, so I think people, many people are already changing their beliefs about money, their stories about money, uh, their stories about how to be secure, how to make choices in life that involve money. People are 
playing by the old rules of the game uh, where you go to college, get your degree, get a job, build your resume, do all that stuff, and it doesn't work. You know, you still can't find a job even if you play by all the rules. So it's not working for people. So um, we're coming around to um, to the end of this particular conversation, and um, I'd like to ask you, Charles, what are you what are you most passionate about at the moment? What are you thinking about? What are you going to write? Hmm. I'm kind of in a place between stories myself. Um, I mean, I've, I'm still passionate about the things I've been speaking and writing about, which are spreading into more and more areas. Um, I guess one thing that I'm, one direction I'm kind of moving toward is what I call, I think I already said it in this conversation, the technologies of reunion. Um, technologies that and using technology in a very, very broad sense to include social technologies, uh, maybe even what you might call spiritual technologies, uh, material technologies. Not that I necessarily believe that these are separate realms, uh, but you know, technology in a broad sense um, that comes from these new stories, the new story of the self, the new story of the people, the new story of the world, the new... Um, and very ancient mythologies mm -hmm. that create the world. So that's maybe a very general answer, but it includes things like the technology of being at the right place at the right time, the technology of synchronicity and flow, um, the technology of, of permaculture, the technology of... Um, Uh, holistic healing technologies, you know, uh, kind of these mind machines, like all kinds of stuff, some of it within accepted scientific paradigms and some of it outside of them. Uh, and you could even say that money is a technology and alternative currencies, complementary currencies and the, and, and the negative interest money that I talk about and all these different things. I mean, that's a technology too. And it can be a technology of reunion. It can be used to bring us together with each other, to bring, to bring us um, back into the circle of life on earth. Um, yeah. The technologies of reunion. That's what I'm passionate about. Thank you very much, Charles. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Yeah, likewise.